We turn our Bibles this morning to Revelation 21. We'll read from the last couple chapters in the Bible, Revelation 21, and then we'll get into chapter 22, the first six verses. We do so in connection with the petition, Thy kingdom come. And we see here the full realization of the glory of that kingdom in the new Jerusalem. We hear the inspired word of God. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God. And he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And there came unto me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me, saying, Come hither. I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, a hundred and forty-four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. 
And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysophras, the eleventh a jacinth, the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of the God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there a tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face. And his name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no light there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated in connection with this passage, we have the treatment of Lord's Day 48. In the back of our Psalters on page 26, Thy kingdom come. We read there in question 123, which is the second petition? Thy kingdom come, that is, rule us so by thy word and spirit that we may submit ourselves more and more to thee. Preserve and increase thy church. Destroy the works of the devil and all violence which would exalt itself against thee and also all wicked counsels devised against thy holy word till the full perfection of thy kingdom take place wherein thou shalt be all in all. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, this petition is perfectly related to the previous, hallowed be thy name. God's name must be hallowed among us. How is God's name hallowed? God's name is hallowed by the coming of his kingdom in our hearts. We will not glorify God. We will not hallow God apart from 
the work of grace by which he penetrates our cold, stubborn, hard hearts and works that grace to submit to his sovereign, divine rule. First, then, by the coming of his kingdom in our hearts. Secondly, by the final glory of that kingdom, as it's revealed here in Revelation 21 and 22, where God will be all in all. Now, there is much confusion in our day on the subject of the kingdom. Some teach that the kingdom of God is earthly. It's a kingdom that has to do with this world. In connection with that, often they speak then of the need to establish that kingdom in every different domain of life and place the burden then upon us to be busy in the establishing of that kingdom. Prayer for the coming of the kingdom often is understood then as we needing somehow to crown Jesus as king and to do so in all the different aspects of life so that a heavy burden is placed upon us. We need to go out there and we need to try to win over this creation for the sake of Jesus Christ. The prayer then becomes very earthly-centered and very earthly-minded. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we pray for the coming of Christ's kingdom in our hearts and lives, the hearts and lives of God's children. We don't pray for an earthly kingdom. We're not praying for a material kingdom. We're not praying for something that we can see here on earth, increasingly being established. We're praying for a spiritual kingdom where Jesus Christ rules by his word and spirit in the hearts and lives of his children. And we look at that this morning, and we ask ourselves again, is this a petition that we're willing to pray? Do we understand what it is that we're praying for as we take this petition on our lips? Prayer for the coming of the kingdom. Noting, first of all, the idea of that kingdom. Secondly, the coming of that kingdom. And finally, the prayer for that kingdom. That is, rule us so by thy word and spirit that we may submit ourselves more and more to thee. That's the way the catechism now takes this petition and understands it. Very personal. A petition that, while it has to do with God's glory and the greatness of God's kingdom, has to do very intimately and personally with each of us. And the catechism is emphasizing that. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we're praying that God increasingly causes his will to be done in our lives and that he works in us submission and acknowledgement that we are citizens of a kingdom that's spiritual and heavenly, a kingdom where Jehovah God is its king, Jesus Christ is Lord, a kingdom that is governed and directed by God's will as set forth especially in his law, the Ten Commandments, And a kingdom then into which we have been brought by a wonder of grace through regeneration, having been given newness of life. We then, as we pray, thy kingdom come, are praying, Lord, help us to be more sorry for our sins. Help us to grow in holiness. Help us to increase in the pursuit of thy will and doing what's right in thy sight. Help us to grow in sanctification and holiness that thy name might receive the praise and honor that is due unto thy name. In praying this petition, we're admitting something that's really important. I'm weak. I can't stand for a moment. I can't be kept or preserved as part of this kingdom apart from God's marvelous grace and his care. So to be very, very crystal clear then, this is not a request 
that God rule over all the earth. God already rules over all the world. He does so by his might. All creatures are subject to his control. And God is such that he's Lord of every area of life. He's Lord of politics. He's Lord of science. He's Lord and governing all of the nations, all of the peoples of the world. He's governing all the animals that exist, all the trees, plants. By his providence, Jehovah God governs every single thing in the world. He rules all the governments, all the companies. He rules every individual. That already takes place. That's not included here in this prayer. God doesn't need any help with regard to his providential ruling over all things. He carries it out perfectly according to his sovereign determination, employing legions of angels in order to assist him in the carrying out and the pursuit of that sovereign rule. So that we confess every single thing that's happening in politics and economics, everything that's happening in the church world, every single thing that's happening among the nations, everything that's happening with regard to nature, it's all being directed by Jehovah God. And he's got a plan for it. It's all serving his purpose and his goal that he has ordained with regard to the doctrine of providence. The kingdom of which this petition is concerned, thy kingdom come, is a kingdom then that is particular. It's a kingdom that particularly has to do with God's rule of grace. His spiritual kingdom whereby he rules over his children, his people. As those who are lifted above all the rest of the creation and all creatures. This kingdom is called a number of different names in the Bible. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's called the kingdom of righteousness. That's significant. So that this is a kingdom then that is spiritual, a kingdom that's righteous. And you children remember, what did Jesus say about this kingdom? When he faced Pilate, he said in John 18 verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. He repeated that again and again through his ministry over against those who were continually confused. Even the disciples thought, it's got to be an earthly kingdom. We're instrumental in trying to get this kingdom established. And Jesus would say, no. My kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It's not of this world. Matthew 7 verse 21 even goes so far as to explain how individuals become citizens of that kingdom. How is membership established? Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. This is a kingdom that is not for everybody who merely desires and says, Lord, Lord. It's a kingdom entrance into which is a wonder of grace. God working in the hearts of his children to obey him and to keep his commandments. Now we notice the catechism does not broaden the kingdom. As the catechism here broadens the idea of the kingdom, it doesn't broaden it to encompass the whole world, everybody that's in the world, all men. But rather, it broadens the kingdom only this far, a prayer for the church. As that church is gathered and as that church is found in the whole world, Although many reprobates join themselves to the external church outwardly and on that basis then are 
numbered among those who would be seen as part of the kingdom, they're not proper subjects. And they'll be banished eventually and cast out of the enjoyment of that kingdom. Only those who are chosen by the Father, given to Jesus Christ, bought by his precious blood, and then in time experience the wonder of regeneration and new life, know the benefits of this kingdom. And what are those benefits? Righteousness, peace, grace, joy in the Holy Spirit. This prayer then is about a kingdom that already exists. It's about a kingdom that already has been established. And that's another important thing. When we say, thy kingdom come, we're praying about a kingdom that already exists and that's been established on what basis? Christ's righteousness. God established and God maintains this kingdom on the basis of Jesus Christ and his precious blood. This is what distinguishes this kingdom from all the kingdoms of men. The kingdoms of men are established by man. They're kingdoms that are fought for by physical force and often then are established in some marvelous way as that ruler displays his might and his authority and power over others. Not so with this kingdom. This kingdom is established through the blood of Jesus Christ. Entrance into this kingdom is only through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Human efforts can't establish this kingdom. This isn't a kingdom that's established by college students or by professors. This isn't a kingdom that's established by political leaders or even religious leaders. This is not a kingdom that's established by money or by physical might or by force. This kingdom is established through the blood of Jesus Christ alone. Jesus takes those who had no right to citizenship and he now gives them a right to citizenship and he incorporates them into that glorious kingdom out of which then nothing can separate them. We maintain the distinction between God's power then by which he rules the whole of the universe and God's grace by which he rules and governs his church. When we use the term, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of righteousness in the Bible, the reference is to that spiritual rule of God with regard to his church. It's not a reference to God's general rule over the whole of creation. That's God's providence. God, according to his providence, rules all things. But when we speak of the kingdom of God, when we speak of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of righteousness, that is a kingdom that is spiritual, that manifests itself in earth, on this earth in the lives and in the hearts of God's elect children who comprise the church, a spiritual body into which God's children are engrafted and by which they are made true members then. This is not a prayer then for the welfare of the world. Our primary concern is the church and the gathering of God's people out of the world into the enjoyment of that glorious kingdom that is spiritual, heavenly, and everlasting. It's striking in that regard that the catechism, again, makes the scope and the sphere as concerns the church, and never broader. As the Heidelberg Catechism explains this petition, isn't it striking also that the Heidelberg Catechism takes 
what we would call an eschatological perspective. We're familiar with eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the end times. The Catechism interprets now this petition in terms of the end times, demonstrating very clearly God's purpose and God's plan with regard to this kingdom is the fullness of the perfection of it in the new heaven and the new earth. And that's set forth marvelously here in Revelation 21 and 22. The spiritual nature of that kingdom. The central glory of the passage that we read is not the external beauty. Now, there's an attempt here to set forth something we can understand. And so we have repeated references to the gold and to the precious gems and to all of the external beauty. But again, we don't take this in a literal sense. That there is this literal city with all of this various beauty. That would be impossible. Why? Because the new Jerusalem is equated with the bride. So how do we understand that then when the scriptures talk about this new Jerusalem and the beauty of this city and then it says this is the bride of Jesus Christ. Well, the bride is the church. So that this beauty is that which is the beauty of the church. So that we don't have a literal city here. We don't have a literal place that has all of this fabulous wealth and beauty. But we have the church triumphant as she now displays her beauty and glory in glory. So that John here is given a vision and he's trying to explain how beautiful this church is, how marvelous her relationship is with her God. And words can't begin to convey the marvel and the beauty and the glory of this kingdom. The joy and the wonder of this kingdom is centered around one thing, the tabernacle of God with man. And that tabernacle is not a physical place. It's, again, the spiritual wonder of God dwelling with his church in Jesus Christ. The fellowship of God with his church reaches the pinnacle. It reaches the fullness as God's kingdom citizens are now made perfect citizens in this glorious relationship with God. They're taken to be like him in all of the spiritual perfections so that now they can reflect God's image in the fullness of the glory of that image. No more sin, no more temptation, no more sorrow, no more crying. Experiencing the fullness of life with God. Again, we can't fathom, and the Bible speaks of that often, that eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, nor hath entered into the heart of man to conceive this glory. And so God gives John this vision to seek to convey a bit of the beauty, the wonder, the marvel of it so that we live by hope. And so that we know that what God has in store for us is something that's more glorious than anything we've ever experienced here on earth. The home, the joy, the wonder of it cannot even begin to compare. Verse 22 stresses there's no more need for a temple so that we don't need a place to go to church. We don't need a place that's going to offer up sacrifices. That's not necessary because God himself fills the glorified church with Christ 
And Christ is her sacrifice. And it's through Jesus Christ that the church lives unto God. This kingdom of God, as she's realized in perfection, is a kingdom that's characterized by endless activity. That comes out in verse 25. The gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. Busy and all the activity of that kingdom is in the service of God and the service of his glory. Now what a contrast. The contrast that the Bible sets forth is between this glory and Babylon. Babylon will perish along with the wicked world. Babylon will be destroyed in outer darkness, cast into the depths of hell. But God's people brought into the fullness of this glory and the wonder of God's kingdom and covenant that are perfected. Chapter 22, verse 5, describes the rule of this kingdom to all eternity. And there shall be no night there, and they shall need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. It's a kingdom that knows no end. It's a kingdom that will continue to endure forever. And we remember all the pictures of this in the Old Testament. Remember in Daniel, where Daniel was given to know the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar's dream had to do with the head of gold and the neck of silver and chest and all of the others that represented all different kingdoms of the world. But what happened to all those kingdoms? They were all destroyed. They lasted for a time and then their end came. But then there's that little stone that's cut without hands that represents Jesus Christ and the kingdom of Jesus Christ which fills the whole world, destroys all of the other kingdoms and is that which knows no end. That's what we're talking about here. Thy kingdom come. We long for the day when the fullness of that kingdom will be realized. A kingdom that already exists in the hearts and lives of God's children as Jesus rules them by his spirit. We can't even begin to fathom the beauty and the wonder of Revelation 21 and 22. But God works in us the faith by which we believe this. And the hope then in which we live in expectation of this glory. Now it's important as we consider thy kingdom come that we understand clearly the relationship of the kingdom to the covenant, to the church. We could say in a certain sense, they all are the same in that they're all comprised of God's elect. God's elect are those who are true members of the church, true members of God's covenant, and they're those who constitute membership in the kingdom. But God uses those three different terms to refer to different aspects of the glory of that body. So that when he talks about kingdom, he's talking about a distinct yet related idea between the kingdom and the covenant. The covenant is that which refers to the friendship, the joy, the love. Whereas the kingdom refers to the structure of that. The government, the fact that there's a king, that there are laws, that there's a language The covenant referring to the life, the friendship, the relationships, and the kingdom referring to then the structure. We understand the need for both. The kingdom involves development. There's a history to that kingdom. There's a line that one can follow as one traces the kingdom 
and it's coming through history. The covenant is the relationship of friendship. It's fellowship. God takes to himself a people into covenant friendship, and he makes them then citizens of his kingdom. And he adapts them to be his children. He brings them into his own family. Now the same individuals then are part of the covenant, part of the kingdom, and part of the church. All involve God's elect children. The goal of the covenant, of the kingdom, of the church, all the same. The glory of God. The kingdom is the structure. The covenant is a reference to the life within that kingdom. So that in order to have a good, rich life of friendship and fellowship, there has to be structure. We acknowledge that even in our homes. If our homes are going to flourish in the covenant life that God requires of us, there needs to be structure. There needs to be discipline. There need to be some rules that are maintained. So it is with regard to God's covenant. In order for God's covenant to exist in the midst of this world, there needs to be structure, and the structure serves the life of the covenant. And so that the kingdom then exists for the sake of the covenant life. God's kingdom exists so that his people can enjoy the fullness of that life with him. And that's the emphasis, again, throughout Scripture. The kingdom is not a thing of itself. It exists to serve God's covenant and God's glory. The structure serving the life. And so the view that you have regarding God's kingdom is going to also affect the view that you have concerning God's covenant and concerning the church. If you believe that God's kingdom is earthly, then the covenant now is going to take up more of an earthly, a temporal idea in one's understanding. And one's view then is going to be more of that which is a breakable bond, something that more has to do with conditions. Those who believe that God established a covenant of works, say with Adam in the beginning, as a temporary covenant that Adam could have kept and then he could have maintained a place in the paradise, making it then conditional upon Adam, tying that now to the covenant, the result then is going to be then a kingdom that exists now in sense for people, a kingdom that is now for God's people, and a kingdom that's going to serve more of a use with regard to an earthly service. It's serving more the world. We understand, beloved, the importance then to understand properly the relationship and the significance. God's covenant is far more glorious than anything this world has to offer. It's an eternal covenant. It's a covenant that is not limited by contracts. It's not limited in any way by man or by man's conditions. It's a covenant that is everlasting, established in Jesus Christ, a covenant that God initiated, that God preserves, and that God keeps. And so also the kingdom, an eternal kingdom, not in any way limited by the things of this earth. The beauty and the glory of that kingdom such that they're spiritual and eternal. So God takes us and he brings us into the joy of his covenant life, filling our hearts with love so that we can know also the wonder that we are citizens of his kingdom. A kingdom that has structure and order where we can live then out the wonder and the joy of our life with him. The kingdom serving the spiritual heavenly life that is ours now 
and will be ours to all eternity. Thy kingdom come. Now what does that mean that we pray for this kingdom to come? The coming of this kingdom is taking place throughout all of history, yet it can never be said to be fully come until Jesus returns in glory. And so the catechism helps us understand this. Rule us so by thy word and spirit that we submit ourselves more and more to thee. Preserve and increase thy church. Destroy the works of the devil and all violence that would exalt itself against thee and also all wicked counsels devised against thy holy word. We see the devil at work. And we see the devil opposing this kingdom. We see the devil doing everything in his power to bring this kingdom down to destruction. And so we pray, Lord, cause this kingdom to be realized. Cause the fullness of it to come. We look around us and we see ourselves and we're so weak. We are not even faithfully maintaining ourselves in this kingdom. We look around at the world about us and we see how weak the church world is, how weak the world is and the power of sin. Come, Lord Jesus. Now there's an earthly kingdom, or there was an earthly picture of this kingdom in paradise, and that was the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden consisted of an earthly creation in which God was given dominion over all things. God created that earthly creation. God caused it to consist of the kingdom of God being established in the hearts of Adam and Eve after their fall into sin. So that paradise was not the goal. Paradise was never the goal. The goal was something far greater, heaven. And paradise was but the picture. God put Adam and Eve in the picture. But from the beginning, God's intent was not that Adam and Eve would be kept in that paradise forever, but that God would create all things in Christ. And God would bring then the kingdom of God to a far glorious realization. God revealed that kingdom to the Jews, especially in the Old Testament, to the Hebrews. So that the nation of Israel was associated with the Christian church of that day. God did not establish his kingdom head for head with all of the Jews with all of Israel, but again, the promise was with believers and with their spiritual seed. And already in the Old Testament, though, God was showing that this kingdom has a spiritual component and that this kingdom is not earthly. This is a kingdom that is going to be gathered out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. It's a kingdom that came in the Old Testament and in the New Testament in the way of battle. But it wasn't earthly battles. Now, there were earthly battles in the Old Testament, but what were they all pointing to? That grand spiritual battle between Christ and the devil. Not a battle with earthly weapons, but a spiritual battle. And Genesis 3.15 introduced that battle. The enmity between the woman and the devil. Her seed and his seed. The outcome... God already had ordained from the very beginning. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And who would be that seed? Jesus Christ. So that God from the beginning ordained that Jesus is the one who would accomplish that glorious kingdom. And so he came preaching. He came teaching righteousness. And he did that to establish his kingdom on the basis of his own righteousness. He had to die in order to solicit the membership then of the citizens of that kingdom we didn't deserve a place we were sinners we were apart from god but jesus laid down his life for us in order that 
on the basis of his perfect sacrifice, he could take us as members of his kingdom and covenant. And Christ then works in the heart of his children. He poured his spirit out within them, resulting then in humble submission to Christ, resulting in a desire to do what's right, to honor him. The spirit works in us a desire for heavenly things. We're not content with the things of this earth. The Spirit works in us a desire for fellowship and communion with God. We desire to walk with God and to talk with God. The Spirit gives us to know our sin and to flee from it. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we're praying, God work in us a greater sensitivity to sin. Work in us increasingly that we might see the wonder and the joy and the glory of that kingdom that is everlasting and that we might be sanctified in our hearts, that we might think more spiritually minded and that we might more spiritually pursue the things that are right and pleasing in God's sight. Included in that is submit to God. God is Lord. He rules our lives. We rebel against him every single day. We pray for grace to submit. This kingdom is coming in the hearts and lives of God's children throughout the whole of the world. And it's coming in terms of God preparing us for the fullness of that glory. And God working in us to turn us away from selfishness and greed and materialism and pride and to turn us increasingly to Him and to the wonder of His joy and His goodness and His mercy that fails never. And so we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit that it penetrate our cold, hard hearts, that God work in us the grace so that we can know that joy and that hope, and that God works throughout the whole world, causing the gospel to go forth in all of its power, that it accomplishes the salvation of his people and the deliverance of his saints. The kingdom is being established as God works heart transplants in the hearts and lives of his elect children. His elect children, chosen from before the foundation of the world, brought now in connection with Christ and his word and experiencing the wonder of the Holy Spirit, working in their hearts new life, a life that's spiritual, a life that's heavenly, a life that will know no end, and a life by which they know themselves now to be citizens of a kingdom that's far more glorious than anything earthly. We pray for the grace to live as members of that kingdom all our days. We're living for God's glory. We're showing forth his praise. We desire to hallow his name. It doesn't matter if we're a trucker or a firefighter or a banker or a teacher, a student, a nurse, a mother. We're praying for God's grace in our hearts to be faithful members and citizens of that glorious kingdom. And we're praying for the grace to teach our children the importance of living as citizens of that kingdom. That they might know the joy of it. That they might know the importance of the structure of that kingdom to guide and direct the life of fellowship and communion with the living God. We pray for strength to hold the truth of God's word and to hold the preaching by which he brings his children, into the knowledge of it, in high regard in our midst. We pray for the grace to promote that preaching to the ends of the earth in order that the gospel might go to every nation, tribe, tongue, and 
every peoples. We pray for the strength to walk according to that truth that we confess and that we live. This kingdom is going to be realized in all of its glory when Jesus comes back. And that's what we celebrate here in Revelation 21 and 22. God will take all his children into the fullness of the joy and hope of that perfect fellowship with him. And he will establish his kingdom on the basis of righteousness forever. All the subject of his kingdom, perfect, made holy in Jesus Christ and living with him in their perfect place in glory forever. What a day of rejoicing that will be. And so, beloved, we pray, thy kingdom come. And we realize this is a personal prayer. I need to realize for what I pray. Rule me so by thy spirit that I submit myself more and more to thee. I'm not inclined to do so. I'm proud. I'm selfish. And so, beloved, we pray intelligently. We pray honestly. This is what we are praying for. This prayer becomes blasphemy again if I'm living an unrepentant life. I'm living in sin. And then I say, thy kingdom come. God says, repent. And then pray with sincerity. Don't keep walking in the way of sin and think that you can pray this petition. You're praying that Christ rules you by your word and spirit when you're rejecting Christ every step of the way. You want nothing to do with his influence in your life. You're not submitting to his will and to his word. And so, beloved, again... We examine our hearts just as we desire to hallow God's name. We want God's name praised in our lives. So we desire that our lives are centered around God, around His glory, around Jesus Christ who's Lord of my life and that I am submitting to Him. And with that motivation that recognizes my own sinfulness, my own weakness, I pray, Thy kingdom come. God gives us that desire. He works in us that willingness. A willingness to suffer pain, to suffer hardship, even loss for the sake of God's kingdom. Because what's most important is not the things that are earthly. These things are all fleeting. They're all going to perish. What's most important is that I know Jehovah God as my friend. And I live in the conscious wonder that His kingdom is that into which he has taken me as a citizen and that he will preserve and keep me in the enjoyment of it to all eternity. As we are in the midst of this world, we're tempted to extremes. Sometimes we're tempted to just pull out and withdraw from the world. We get so fed up with everything going around, on around us. Other times we're tempted to amalgamate ourselves to the world because we don't want to be ostracized. We don't want to look differently. And so we just want to fit in and we want to be engaged in the things of this world. We know neither one are acceptable. We're called to be in the world, but not of it. Because our citizenship is not earthly. Our citizenship is spiritual and heavenly. And we're called to come to the Father. God draws us powerfully to himself, according to John six forty four. No man would come apart from the irresistible work of God in our hearts. And so by grace, we come. We flee to him in order to know in him the joy and the wonder of our salvation. And God gives us that delight, that joy, that we are citizens of a kingdom that will never be destroyed, a kingdom that will endure to all eternity, and that he will preserve and keep us as our Lord, as the one 
who preserves that kingdom. But we also pray for the church. Preserve and increase thy church. This petition implies a love for Christ's church. Do you love Christ's church? We love the church where we see the marks that are evident, the marks of the church, and we seek the good of that church. We seek to glorify God with the fullness that we can as members of that faithful church. We need our membership in that church. We need to be living members of that church. And as we promote the work of that church, which especially has to do with the preaching of the gospel, we pray for the coming of Jesus Christ, knowing that the chief sign is the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth. We love the church. We support the church and we pray for the church's mission to be focused around the faithful proclamation of the gospel. And we support missions and we pray for the grace in order to be faithful witnesses to those around us not only, but also to be members of churches that are active in mission work in order that the kingdom might come. And we long for that day. That day when all the elect will finally be gathered and when Jesus will appear in glory. That day is certain. It's sure. Mockers come and they try to detract us from it coming to pass. But we know it's sure because even as Jesus came the first time, he's coming again. And he made that promise to his disciples as he ascended into heaven. And what a glorious encouragement this is for God's saints. As we live in the midst of the struggles and the trials, as we battle against sin every single day in our lives, to know this is but temporary. That day will come when there will be no more temptation, no more sin, when all my tears are going to be gone, when I'll be ushered into the glorious wonder of the full realization of this kingdom. The struggles of this earth are temporary. They're but for a time. And they can't begin to compare to the glory that is to be revealed. Too often we're far too earthly minded. We're far too seeking the things of this life to be able to pray this prayer. But may God grant us grace to desire with all of our heart the coming of his glorious kingdom in our lives and work in us that longing for the perfection that is ours to come. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, what wonders thou hast performed for us, children of the dust, to lift us to such a glorious place as to take we who are earthly and to make us spiritual and heavenly. And then to give us who are under the curse of death to know a life that is from above and a life that is everlasting. To give us to know and to believe that we are citizens of a kingdom that can never be destroyed. A kingdom that thou art preserving and keeping through Jesus Christ. Work so in our hearts and in our lives that we might be joyful, that we might be thankful, and that we might live ever in the joy and wonder of this kingdom of which we are citizens now and to all eternity. Amen.